Welcome to Promiscuous Listening, where we take a cue from John Milton's 1644 tract, Areopagitica, and its promotion of reading promiscuously to learn from the diversity of voices in 21st century Milton studies. My name is Marissa Greenberg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my conversations with scholars about the works of John Milton, and especially his epic poem, Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost began not as an epic poem, but as a dramatic tragedy. Milton's vision for a play about the fall of humanity would not have been stageable, even if Milton had wished it. In 1642, Parliament closed London's commercial playhouses, and for the next 18 years, commercial performance was officially banned in England. When theatre resumed in London in 1660 with the restoration of the monarchy, the playhouses, performance practices, and dramatic modes were largely unlike anything that Milton would have known from his youthful attendance at plays by Shakespeare and Johnson. But even as Milton pivoted from drama to epic to justify the ways of God to men, he did not leave behind a fascination with, and a flair for, the theatrical. The theatrical is everywhere in Book 4 of Paradise Lost, beginning with Satan's Hamlet-like soliloquy in its opening stanzas. But the drama of human history that unfolds starting in Book 4 is not exclusively tragic. In fact, it's often quite bawdy. So let me take this opportunity to point out that this episode of Promiscuous Listening acknowledges the existence of sex and discusses in detail sex in Paradise Lost. To help us understand Milton's representation of sex as well as marriage and gender, we welcome Dr. Ari Friedlander to the podcast. Let's begin with an introduction. My name is Ari Friedlander. Uh, I'm a professor of English literature at the University of Mississippi, located in Oxford, Mississippi. I am writing a book called um, Rogue Sexuality. So the book uh, is about um, the depiction, uh, sexualized depiction of the poor and the criminal in Renaissance England. Um, it starts by looking at uh, the way this occurs in uh, popular crime literature uh, written in uh, from the mid-16th century uh, through the uh, early 17th century. And uh, the basic contention uh, of that part of the book is that um, this very popular literature about the homeless and the criminal and the poor, uh, which often sort of travel together in this material under the name of rogue. The basic contention of uh, that part of the book is that these rogues are defined through their uh, excessive sexuality. And uh, what I mean by that when I say defined is that their social marginality is revealed uh, through their excess sexuality, through their promiscuity, uh, through their adultery, through their bastardy, um, et cetera. And the reason that's important is because uh, during this period, we have the beginnings of what we now call the nanny state or the welfare state, um, which uh, requires, has historically required um, a state uh, definition of the deserving versus the undeserving poor. Namely, who's going to receive uh, welfare or relief from the state uh, is a question of who deserves that relief, not necessarily exactly who only who needs it. 
but who deserves it? And how do you decide between the deserving and the undeserving poor? Um, well, um, I, again, I think that this popular literature sprung up in part out of a, a desire to um, to say that there were undeserving poor who we call rogues, and the way you can tell the difference between the deserving and the undeserving poor um, is through their uh, sexual improprieties, whose evidence is, is visible in a host of ways, including women who walk alone, for example, um, and therefore are probably prostitutes. I say that in, in air quotes. Um, and um, men who are wandering either with or without women, but um, can't give a good explanation for where they're going or why they're on their way. These are, are people who are assumed to be up to no good. Um, and that, that includes things like thievery. But again, it was assumed that they would be um, having sex on the road or in barns um, on the way um, that uh, sometimes uh, even even if they appeared to be married or, or claimed to be married, um, these were some, they, they was, that was the kind of thing that, that would be met with suspicion. And it was sort of a kind of... Um, um, what's that called? A vicious cycle mm. or a tautology where in, you know, how do you know they're, they're rogues? Well, because they're sexually improper. And how do you know they're sexually improper? Well, because they're rogues, right? Yeah. Book sort of starts at that point and then goes on to think about how or explore how uh, William Shakespeare, Ben Johnson, and John Milton, what I call appropriate this trope of rogue sexuality in the popular literature, um, in us for to think about not just the low social register but the more elite social registers. Um, so how Ben Johnson uses the sort of erotic appeal of rogues to represent the sort of um, chic West End of London, how Shakespeare uses fecund reproduction of rogues uh, to think about bastardy and the foundling myth in the representation of uh, Princess Perdita in The Winter's Tale, and how John Milton uh, uses rogue sexuality both to tar his enemies um, in his divorce tracts when he's writing about what is and is not the proper way to um, think about marriage and love and divorce, and in Paradise Lost when he's uh, writing about Adam and Eve's marriage. As you were just talking, I had a thought that I hadn't had before. And so I was wondering maybe if we, we could start with this. And that is your description of a kind of roving male individual, whether he's alone or, or with a woman, that was as problematic as a roving woman on her own, possibly. At this point, students in my Milton class haven't read book nine, so they haven't seen Eve alone. They, we are introduced to Adam and Eve decidedly not alone. They enter hand in hand, and we see them first through the eyes of Satan, who, for the past book and a half, has been roving through this kind of vast, chaotic space, um, sweet-talking sin, manipulating chaos, and then, of course, um, tricking Uriel. And so I'm just wondering, do you read Satan? Is there, is there a way to read Satan as a kind of rogue in the first four books of Paradise Lost? Yes. So first of all, let me back up and say that the underworld was a part of the way, um, and when I say the underworld, I mean hell, <laughs> was a part of the way crime literature understood the Elizabethan criminal underworld that it discussed. So you get things like uh, Thomas Decker's uh, Lantern and Candlelight starts in hell. 
and it starts with Satan sending emissaries, uh, Satan and, and, and his minions. I don't know if he's called Satan or Beelzebub or, you know, a devilish figure that um, hears about this character named the Bellman, that uh, kind of law enforcement officer that Decker invented. And he hears that the Bellman has been unmasking and all the tricks of the of the Satan's minions um, in London. And so he sends messengers to to London to, to find out what's going on. Right. And so, you know, so I think that there is precedent before Paradise Lost for thinking about um, these criminal figures in London uh, as associated with the devil, number one, and number two, uh, as a representational strategy, there is precedent for us representing the devil through uh, an association with criminals and rogues. Mm. So I think that um, when Milton represents Satan in, this, in the first four books as sort of the head of a vast underworld that inverts the social structures of um, of heaven, but both of them sort of echo the social structures of our world, right? There are there are hosts, there are, you know, uh, different kinds of offices, there are uh, parliaments, you know, the, these kinds of things, right? Um, there are uh, various bureaucracies that seem to be uh, aped by, by Satan and hell. And so I think that that has a representational precedent with rogue literature. So I think, I think it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to say Milton wasn't doing that. Again, these are not obscure things. You know, they're obscure to us now, but this was a vastly popular literature. Um, I firmly believe Milton was aware of it, of it and its tradition. In terms of a, a more characterological kind of analysis, I think you were sort of asking me sort of Satan as the, as, as the figure in doing what he's doing. I think that I think that there's a certain sense in which particularly Satan's eloquence and ability to persuade and and feign and dissemble um, might also be a part of, of a Renaissance uh, representations of rogues and comp because they weren't always just wandering highwaymen type figures. They were often represented as con artists. Mm. And so I think Satan is, of course, the ultimate con artist. And um, I think that that is uh, another way that I would that I would imagine him uh, as, as drawing on the rogue tradition. And finally, I'll just say that I think kind of the, what I think of is almost like the metaphysics of Satan has, has a kinship with the metaphysics of rogue literature. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when Satan is talking to himself at the beginning of book four, uh, he says, is there no place left for repentance, none for pardon left, none left but by submission. And that word disdain forbids me in my dread of shame among the spirits beneath whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent. I feel like he's sort of saying here that he cannot submit if he's not uh, first free. In the rogue pamphlets, there's there's this sense that, you know, uh, from my point of view anyway, that the ideas of order uh, come out of disorder. And usually we think about it the other way, that, well, you know, first you have the idea of what should be done and then you define and then out of that comes what shouldn't be done, you know. I like the idea that in Paradise Lost, there's sort of the there's sort of the opposite sense. You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about 
Paradise Lost in this way. But now that you're inviting us to do that, at least as related to this passage, we have books in book three, God talking about prayer, repentance and obedience. Right. And Mm -hmm. that is the way towards salvation, which sounds very prescriptive. But of course, God doesn't experience time the way created Mm -hmm. beings do. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's something like about Satan's process here that he cannot arrive at that divine order except through his own disorderliness. But he never really gets there anyway. Is that what you were driving at maybe? Yeah, I think what I'm saying is that this freedom is, of course, a freedom from God, right? Mm. Uh, that Satan's talking about. Um, and so he he needs to be, before he can be obedient to God in an orderly kind of subject, he says he needs to first be uh, disorderly, right? He needs mm. to first be free from God's yoke. But of course, yeah, the point is that this becomes a paradox, right? He, he's not willing to submit. He's not willing to give up that freedom in order to submit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But um, so, you know, even though, again, even though Satan makes this point and we are therefore to be suspicious of it in in typical Miltonian fashion uh, and also in typical Milton fashion, there is some wisdom in it. Right. That, that actually, unless you're free from from really, truly free from God, how can you actually submit? Because otherwise you'd always already be submitted or under his power in some sense or subjected. Right. right. Uh, that in a sense, disorder, you know, always needs to come before order logically, even if that's an uncomfortable truth or a truth that that is not a kind of orthodox truth. Well, and I mean, I think it also makes sense. It, it does make a Miltonic sense that in order to choose wisely, right, reason mm-hmm. is but choosing, in order to choose well, you have to first encounter all sorts of things that are potentially disordering, right, that mm-hmm. will lead your mind astray or your heart astray or various other body parts astray, um, as he you know, advocates for in Ariopagitica, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's another reason I'm pretty convinced Milton read these pamphlets because mm-hmm. it just, it just, uh, it, it would be consistent with his statements about the kinds of things a godly person should read. Satan clearly hasn't read these things. Um, <laughs> um, but neither is Adam and Eve. Um, so if, if we might just return sure. to that moment when, when Satan first sees uh-huh. Adam and Eve, he, undelight, he saw undelighted all delight, all kind of living creatures new to sight and strange, to a far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty seemed lords of all and worthy seemed for in their looks divine the image of their glorious maker shown later read that you know satan is clearly jealous of them he wants to look away but he can't tear away his eyes because they're just so beautiful what do you make of this introduction of adam and eve by way of satan's first glance of them as well before we talk about what satan Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, what spin Satan seeing them in this way uh, suggests? I think we need to talk about just what he's seeing, mm. and then do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so what always strikes me the first time about description of Adam and Eve is you know obviously the uh, 
gender uh, kind of differentiation that um, is sort of both explicit and kind of hidden in this description. There's uh, this emphasis on uh, masculine authority and absolute rule and Adam, of course, and there's uh, uh, Eve's sort of implied subjection. Uh, all of this is sort of immediately evident to Satan on first glance from just from their physical appearance, right? They're nobler shaped, erect and tall. Their carriage um, marks the, marks humans as sort of the, the rulers in general and Adams and the differences between them mark Adam as sort of the, the more noble and more rulerly, lordly of the two. I always love the description of Eve's uh, unadorned golden tresses, uh, disheveled but in wanton ringlets waves, waved rather. Um, saying, you know, there's this this wantonness, which is a word, of course, that comes up again at, at various points in the in the text, and is always a kind of um, red flag for for Milton's readers, right? Um, that something uh, wrong is happening here. Uh, he's saying that these tendrils implied suggestion, subjection rather, uh, but uh, of course, the fact that they're wanton means that they'll be difficult to tame, right? Right. And then there's all these paradoxes in how Eve is described, the coy submission, the modest pride, uh, the sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. I, When I read these things, I feel like I'm reading a lot of things that Milton, the narrator, and or Milton, the author, agrees with. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily read all these things and think, oh, because this is Satan's view, Milton's trying to tell us that, that Satan is misapprehending what he's seeing. You know, hmm. uh, at the same time, I feel like you that there's there's got to be some reason that there's some residual effect of having Satan frame these observations, right? And, uh, you know, one of the place I always start when I talk to my students about this is um, the idea that it provides uh, readers with a kind of uh, fallen perspective uh, um, from which to view Adam and Eve in a way, you know, that feels different than the muse-authorized narrative voice that Milton's narrator has, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a there's a way in which this seeing Adam and Eve through Satan's eyes does sort of encourage the reader to identify with Satan's perspective. But at the same time, it's also encourage, it's also allowing the reader to encounter Adam and Eve from a kind of remove that I think Milton is, is using because he wants the reader to, he expects the reader to, to be able to, to see Adam and Eve from that remove in a way that they might have seen them if they saw them themselves. Mm -hmm. That makes me think about the, you know, as you say, the Milton, the poet, or Milton, the, the narrator, the speaker in, in the poem, his commentary after Adam and Eve go into their, after they have their prelapsarian prayer, right? And then they go into their bower for their prelapsarian sex. And this long commentary on how our ideas and our experiences of marital bliss have changed as a result of the fall, right? So it's, there's something about the entire encounter with Adam and Eve is framed by our own fallen state for Milton, that we, can, we can't have unmediated access to, to what experiences were available before the fall. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But again, I, I think it's one of the things that's interesting to me about it is that is that it's a distancing that also makes them in a way easier to apprehend for the reader because they don't the reader doesn't expect to be close to Adam and Eve. 
right? They're mm. so far from the first in the first place, right? So to sort of see, view them through this uh, at, at one remove, I mean, I don't know if this is a silly metaphor, but it's almost like sticking a toe in the bath before you sink in, you know, like you get to see them from a remove before you get to see them directly. And um, it's sort of like a slow uh, reveal on Milton's part. Um, I think there's a way in which Milton is trying to, throughout the poem, sort of slowly reveal the layers of holiness, mm-hmm. right? Slopes more and more kind of uh, so that they're not, um, so that the reader isn't sort of immediately overwhelmed by what the, the, the revelation that a paradise lost promises or that Milton wants to promise the reader. Yeah, no, that, that's a really nice point especially in combination with what you said a moment ago about what does Satan see? What do we see, right? That we see these characters that are differentiated by gender, clearly mm-hmm. marked racially uh, as well, mm-hmm. um, and that their gendered racialized bodies are indicative of certain personality features, so to speak, that mm-hmm. are nonetheless not unique or individuated, right? But stand in as universal characteristics. This is what white English men are like. Um, right. And therefore, all humanity is like, right? But they're also introduced to us. And here I think we're coming back. I want to come back to your discussion of the rogue literature that I agree with you, Milton would have been familiar with, uh, that they are presented and, you know, they enter hand in hand. They enter together, not equal, as we are told, but in union. And one of the first things that we hear them talking about, again, through Satan, who's eavesdropping on the conversation, is their labor. So unlike the rogues of Elizabethan and and Jacobean pamphlets, they are industrious. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you might talk a bit about what relationship you see between their presentation as a marital pair and their industry in in Eden. There have been a lot of theories about why Milton makes Adam and Eve work so hard in Eden. Um, uh, I think that for for me, uh, one of the reasons he makes them work so hard is because, um, and that I haven't heard people talk about so much, uh, is that, well, what would they be doing in Eden if they didn't work, mm. right? Uh, they would just be having a good time uh, and doing it together, right? And I think that just having them wander about together, enjoying pleasures of Eden, would have made them seem uncomfortably similar to the uh, rogue characters in in, uh, rogue literature, um, who uh, are sometimes described as being married or um, having periods of marriage and monogamy before divorce. Um, And so it's not as as much of a stretch as one might think uh, to think of Adam and Eve uh, in this way. They are um, not married in the church at this point, uh, and they just sort of consecrate their own union using to be around. Um, if they didn't Adam work, they would be these idle and uh, ambiguously the marriage that people who just enjoyed themselves all the time and making sure we know so is I present. think that you're right to draw our attention to As you're talking, I was thinking uh, that the, you know, sort of Milton is presenting their, a certain kind um, of inherent hand in predisposition hand towards um, certain behaviors, right? Uh, and so, for example, I like to think about that moment of prelapsarian prayer where Adam 
believe they're standing, they're under the open sky, right? And they're just praising God. This is not post-lapsarian prayer that is at a specific site of, you know, institutional power. It's not kneeling. It doesn't have a prescribed form and they're not asking God for anything, right? Uh, whereas the, that, the former is the more natural state, uh, Milton seems to be saying. But if I'm hearing you correctly, even as that seems a certain kind of instinctive praise, there is also a kind of Foucauldian self-discipline going on at the same time that they need to be laboring um, in particular ways, pre-lapsarian ways, that demonstrate other activities, including prelapsarian sexuality, as itself a disciplined form. Am, am I hearing correctly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a reason that Eve's hair is wanton, and so is the growth in the garden, mm. right? Uh, there's this kind of sense that um, the prelapsarian Eden, a prelapsarian life, is is undisciplined. If you say that there's a kind of inherent or inborn orderliness or godliness, or uh, I, I, I would say that um, again, disorder precedes order, right? So, what ha- what does that mean to have? Uh, some sort of inborn desire to to be good. If there's not also some sort of impulse that 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 is opposite it, that has to be manicured, right? <laughs> uh, right? Um, so to me, anyway, Adam and Eve, uh, even if they have this sort of inborn goodness or inborn tendency towards towards the good or towards praising God or recognizing virtue, there's uh, also the the form that inborn goodness takes is is one of disciplining. What you're saying makes me think of the moment in their conversation when they make reference to until we have children who can help us keep the garden better manicured. That's the line I was referring to when I was referring to the garden as being wanton. Right. It said, our walk at noon with branches overgrown mock our scant manuring and require more hands than ours to lop their wanton growth, right? So even the sort of natural uh, injunction to be fruitful and multiply is itself a kind of born of a, uh, not just because God is good and creation is good and more of it is good. It's um, because there's the work of humanity is the work of discipline, you know. And in order for that work to take place, you need the disorder that work will then contain. Yeah. I mean, again, discipline is meaningless without something to be disciplined. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, that's that's my reading of, of what's happening here anyway. We know after the fall, labor changes. The students will see in later books that there is at least at times, a differentiation in labor according to gender. And certainly after the fall, labor is gendered. One place I think we see Milton return to this is in the sonnet, Me Thought I Saw My Late Espoused Saint, that I I told you I'd ask students to read as well. And the reason why is because that poem is set in a post-lapsarian world where we have a Milton-like speaker who has gone blind, often in kind of more biographical readings, this this blindness is ascribed to his work in the Cromwellian government, right? So his manly work in the world. And the late espoused saint who he sees in his dream is presented as having died in, in labor, right? In childbirth. 
Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this poem shapes in any way your perspective on what is seen as the kinds of labor that Milton shapes as disciplining um, or maybe how this poem sets a certain kind of elite labor different from rogue licentiousness, perhaps? Honestly, I had never thought of this poem in relation to um, my work on rogue sexuality or on Milton before. I had taught this poem in connection uh, with um, disability, but I really, I think it's really interesting to think about it in terms of men's labor versus women's labor and the way you framed it. I think that, uh, I think you're absolutely right uh, that there is, uh, that whenever Milton is talking about uh, his blindness, especially in the sonnets, he's um, often thinking about it in terms of uh, his uh, labor that has cost him his sight. Um, and so I think that that context here makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that it also uh, makes sense to think about women's labor in a sort of post-lapsarian sense here, um, not only uh, because his wife uh, died in child uh, childbirth, but because, of course, she's she he describes her as you know washed from the spot of childbed taint. Right. Mm. I think it's also. Also, the way in which Milton talks about his blindness in this poem is as being restored, but then taken away again, brings to mind this question of um, crime and punishment and uh, grace or not receiving grace. Right. This is, a, of course, a kind of fantasy that Milton has in his in his dream that not only does he get to be with his late espoused saint again, but he gets to have his vision restored to him. But uh, of course, it's it's one of the, the most amazing sort of final line in the poem for its compression. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. The sorrow of loss uh, in that line is is uh, is uh, always I always find very moving. It reminds me of the way in which the whole poem kind of acts as a a fantasy of Milton's. Um, escape from from punishment being sort of punctured, you know? Okay, so so as you were talking, I thought back to a term that you introduced earlier uh, mm-hmm. when talking about the rogue literature and kind of the Elizabethan move toward a welfare state and the deserving poor versus the undeserving poor. And that that's the mm-hmm. term charity. Mm-hmm. Is there a way of, do you think, reading this dream as this charitable moment? Like, a, a, not to be punny, but a kind of a glimpse of what charity genuine charity would would look like in what sense what would be what would be the charity here one problem that i that i have with milton on charity is has to do with his theodicy right this idea that yes some are already chosen for salvation but the rest of us right and i speak as a jewish woman um right the rest of us salvation is made available to us by God's grace, and we are led to it through our God-given free will and our ability to reason, right, to choose, and then we are helped by the good old umpire conscience. All those things that God has given us are evidence of God's charity that will allow us to come to salvation. On earth, though, charity looks very different, right? As you point out, in some ways, it's not about who needs it or who asks for it, but who you know seems to deserve it or not. One way that I see possibly to read this poem is that the Milton speaker gets a glimpse of what charity 
in this world, in this life might look like? A charity that he has not earned, Mm. but that he needs. I think that that's, I think that's part of what the poem is, is doing for sure. I mean, I I think that it's, um, it's a kind of celebration of this, uh, of this vision and for which I, I, I agree with you. I think he's grateful and I think that he sees it as a, uh, or the speaker anyway, sees it as a, as a a moving, uh, glimpse of a a sort of divine goodness, right? Not just, um, um, a loving spouse. I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that Milton thinks his last life was actually a saint, but I do think that he's not, not saying that, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) um, or at least in the dream she was right. Right. Uh, and that she embodied or uh, love, sweetness, and goodness uh, in a in a supernatural kind of sense, and not just in a kind of emotional sense, right? And love, of course, is is a, one of the ways that charity is defined, right? So, in that sense, charity from beyond the grave is certainly something that Milton experiences in this poem. I am always interested in in the correspondences between spiritual and material charity, and of course the. The, one of the big differences between the two is that the spiritual charity is perfectly abundant um, and material charity is uh, famously um, always uh, not enough, right? Mm. And so I think it's interesting and, in, you know, what interests me about this poem is how, you know, this is a vision of spiritual charity that is not enough, that Milton wakes up and I waked, she fled and day brought back my night. Of course, one one could choose to say that this is all Milton needed to get him through the dark day nights that he lived in, you know. Right. Um, but to me, the, the, there's that that final line is so violently compressed and, and bleak and ironic. Day brought back my night. That's typical kind of uh, unresolved bitterness that Milton has about his punishment, you know, uh, that I think is always there as quote unquote punishment, no matter how many times to me that he insists that he's fine and that he doesn't, that he, he'd, he'd do everything the same again. And, you know, he just bears everything with patience. You know, I, 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 I think that one of the things that makes him such a wonderful poet is that he's too honest with himself to really let himself uh, believe that, and, and, and to let himself not express the rich, contradictory feelings on some register that he has about all of it. Mm. I would agree. And, and maybe I could use this to pivot to another potential contradiction in, in book four. Another kind of key term in your work, as well as in the, the 16th and the 17th centuries, and that is companionate marriage. One way to maybe bring together your work on rogue sexuality and your current work on disability, right, is that Milton, as a poet with a disability, has, cer- has certain dependencies that the historical record suggests fell largely, not exclusively, but largely to women in his life. And yet a a definition of companionate marriage would suggest that that's exactly the way things should be. There should be a a mutual dependency between husbands and wives. And so I'm wondering if you might talk about the way in which Milton introduces companionate marriage in book four that may potentially be in tension with his experience of... Whether his own marriages or his the state and you know the, the situation in which he's writing the poem, where he is dependent in a very different kind of way on the quote unquote weaker sex. I think that it's always very interesting to think about Milton's um, biography and um, his poetry, um, even though we're always 
uh, taught from almost day one as literature students not to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, the intentional um, fantasy and all these things. But somehow Milton gets a pass, right? Yes. It's very common for Milton, <laughs> Miltonists uh, to have very sophisticated biographical reflections on Milton and his work uh, as if um, as if uh, that is not um, something that is other, otherwise often uh, forbidden. And we were, of course, just doing it and thinking about his blindness and his disability and its impact on his work well, before. I'm just going to interrupt. I mean, he he makes his biography, he makes his lived experience the subject of his literary representation. So I think, you know, for us, it's when we talk about Milton, it's often we're talking about the literary Milton that the historical Milton has constructed. Right. Um, But that's a mouthful. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes, so, yes, yes, yes. so, yeah, so there, there yeah. definitely is danger there. But please go uh, ahead. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, I don't. I think it's an opportunity because mm. you know we're allowed to think thoughts when we think about Milton that often we don't allow ourselves to think otherwise in our discipline. For example, in fact, I think the one of the first ways we started talking about Milton, you and I, is uh, I had learned that Milton's wife, first wife, uh, who with whom he had. Uh, originally a very unhappy uh, union, um, left his household in part according to the record that we have from friends and gossip uh, because um, his household in London was too noisy because his nephews were always being, who lived there, were always being beaten. I believe that Milton was responsible for tutoring them, and uh, tutors often beat their students in this period. And uh, I think it's, it's, I was sort of wondering how likely is it that one of the reasons for his own unfamously unhappy mar- first marriage is that he beat his own nephews too much that his wife was so offended and, and morally and, and sensitive, sen- sensibly offended that she had to leave him. One only wonders if, if she, in fact, asked him to stop beating them so much and mm-hmm. he refused, right? And so I think that, like, um, these speculations are, I, I, I think, are super interesting and are potentially useful when thinking about his thoughts about things like marriage and divorce. Um, so, yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that it, that it is dangerous, but I, I do think it's an interesting, an interesting opportunity that Milton gives us. Um, and so when you asked about, you know, what are some potential disjunctions between the way Milton represents companionate marriage, which is a term historians of sexuality and marriage use to describe the development in uh, the Reformation era of uh, a model of marriage that was based on um, mutual, uh, emotional, um, and sexual uh, companionship, as opposed to a more um, material partnership or alliance or a more uh, hierarchical, strictly hierarchical kind of relationship within the um, marital spousal dyad. So when you asked us to think about what are the potential disjunctions between Milton's biography uh, and his um, his um, idealization of of companionate marriage in Adam and Eve, and also in his writings on marriage and divorce. Of course, that's that's one of the ones I think of right away is uh, his own first disastrous marriage and the way in which he he describes um, 
bad marriages. He writes all these tracks about how divorce should be legal after his wife separates from him. And he describes unhappy marriages, one would think from his own experience, um, in ways that are quite awful as being uh, shackled to a corpse, um, as being, uh, as having sex with someone you don't love, as grinding in the mill of servile copulation. Um, so uh, almost like in a forced labor camp um, kind of situation, or the prison house the poor were often sent to in, in Milton's time, the workhouse. So it's very tempting to, to think about, even though he idealized marriage, uh, companion in marriage, that idealization was driven by a kind of demonization of unhappy marriages, on the other hand, that he seemed to to live through himself. Um, so uh, according, uh, according, according to his own writing, anyway, it is tempting to, to and interesting to think about that uh, context for what he writes about companion and marriage. One of the things my work has, has suggested to me is that when he's talking about companion and marriage in book four, uh, and uh, he describes it as, uh, he says, uh, hail wedded love. This is often described as the hymn, hymn to marriage mm-hmm. um, by Milton scholars, although I don't think the poem actually calls it that. Hail wedded love, mysterious law, true source of human offspring, sole propriety in paradise of all things common else. By thee, adulterous lust was driven from men among the bestial herds to range. He says, wedded love is the sole property of people in paradise and all things else in paradise are common. And then he goes on to say that it also drives adulterous lust out of men among the bestial herds. And that's something Milton's done before in this book already, Mm -hmm. just sort of made that distinction between beasts and men and described beasts as sort of um, uh, the animals as uh, irrational or given to pleasure and play as opposed to the work that men do uh, and that Adam and Eve do. But again, uh, um, I, here I see how could there be lust to drive out among the herds before the fall, right? Um, I think that there's, again, this question of disorder of preceding order in Eden, um, right? You can't, you can't drive out something that wasn't there already, right? So uh, for marriage to do that, lust has to precede marriage in some way. And if these, if Adam and Eve are married and 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 Eden, then uh, and there must in some way be lust, whether it's in Eve's wanton ringlets or 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 somewhere else. And so again, I think elsewhere, Milton unequivocally states that there isn't, right? So I, I think that, you know, this is a contradiction in Milton's thought that he al- allows to exist, I think, again, in part because he's too, he's too honest to wish it away, that, there's, that there is this sort of sense that these things need each other to be thought. And so he shows that contradiction in his writing. Uh, you know, I am very interested in why marriage is described as a property, um, and therefore a possession. And I think that it's connected to this idea of marriage driving lust from men to beasts uh, in the sense that um, Milton is very interested in making companionate marriage a kind of mark of status. And uh, Adam and Eve, just as they are, have a noble shape, um, that word uh, as compared to the other animals, um, they have a kind of status through their sexual discipline uh, as compared to the other animals. And of course, in Milton's time, uh, as compared to the the rogues um, and other sort of sexually impropriate, uh, inappropriate characters that um, that were compared to animals. Um, So uh, this included for Milton 
pretty much anybody who disagreed with him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but especially people who disagreed with him about what marriage uh, was or should be. Right. Yeah. And I think this also reflects back on, on our conversation about labor in paradise, that as Adam and Eve are stewards of Eden, that is part of their nobility, right? They are they are landed gentry, as it were, always and, and foremost. And that it's that oversight of the land of this right. property that is part of their right. uh, what distinguishes them. Uh, although it seems that they don't own the land. In some well, sense. Well, yeah, they, they are. Well, yes, they are stewards, right? But then technically, if I'm remembering correctly, all English nobles are, in fact, stewards of the land for the king anyway, right? That's a good point. There's, yeah. there's something there, I think, as well. Um, all of these fitting together, property, totally. propriety, what is right. proper. Thank you again so very much for sharing your time and your expertise. And uh Like I said, I'm looking forward to reading more of your work because I've learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.